0: Welcome to The Sandbox.
1: Welcome to The Sandbox podcast, a conversation about life and what's trending through the lens of faith and creativity. I'm Dave Berg. And I'm Chris Roberts. We've been hearing it over the past couple of weeks. Chris, brother, man, just... What the heck is Sandbox Cooperative?
0: <laughs> yeah, so for those of you who might not know, uh, Sandbox Cooperative is our quarterly event. We host a live interactive conversation on a range of topics uh, that connect our experiences of life to our faith. Uh, we, we hope to provide, uh, through this podcast and through these events, a platform for faith and life conversations with a pr- progressive theological lens that encourages questions, doubt, grace, and exploration. Um, next up, we're looking, looking forward to our next event, which will be on September 27th with Science Mike McHarg. Can't wait
1: to have Science Mike in the, in the sandbox. Again, our goal here is to bridge the gap between sandbox cooperative events with these conversations, which will happen every other week. If you want to hear previous podcasts or watch recordings of, of the speakers that we have at our live events, be sure to check out sandboxcooperative.com.
0: Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we want to do with this podcast is take a look at the events that are happening around the world and explore how we see them as people of faith and what we might learn from them. Uh, And it's probably true for, for many of you. The biggest news grabbing our attention lately has been the shooting in Charleston, South Carolina.
1: So the name of this episode is Charleston, but it's about more than just that. We want to talk some about race, faith the things that divide us, the things that unite us, and the ways that we might be able to move forward from here. So we're really excited. We connected yesterday with Paul Van Auken, a sociology professor from the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. He was in Charleston at the time of the shooting with his wife and two girls, and they were staying just a couple blocks from where the shooting took place. Now, even as we talk about race, division, and and steps forward, we have huge, glaring gaps here. At the end of the day, we are a couple of white guys interviewing a white guy and talking about race. We have big limitations. Yet we still feel it's, it's hugely important to have conversation started. Limitations and all. As white guys, we have a responsibility to act here as well. So a couple of things I hope for here. One, that our talk has some ripple effects and helps build some bridges and furthers dialogue and communication. And two, that we will have more diverse voices here in the future so that the white guys will stop talking and spend more time listening. For now, though, we will try to get a conversation going and later get out of the way, listen, and learn. So for starters, Chris, will you back up the bus here a little bit and say a word or two about the events that took place in Charleston last week?
0: Sure. So uh, I'm sure most of you have heard the story, uh, but just a quick background on on kind of what happened. Uh, So on the evening of June 17th, a mass shooting took place at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, During a Bible study at the church, a white man about 21 years old, later identified as Dylan Roof, uh, opened fire with a handgun, killing nine people. Uh, this incredibly awful shooting has since sparked a national conversation about why these things happen, what we can do about them, uh, and and how to begin to to really start the the work of heal of healing the wound of our racial divide. Um, I'm never never really sure what to do or say after these mm-hmm. types of events, um, but but I do just have to say that like I'm genuinely sick and tired of the culture of hate and fear that leads to these events. Yeah. Um, I mean I I don't know how to say it other than that I just I, I don't know what to do about it, but it it's it's wearing on us culturally and collectively. Um, and I'm also sorry for the for the ways that uh, we perpetuate that. I think a lot of times when we talk about divisions, of race or otherwise, we talk about how we're not overtly harmful. Like we say, "I'm not racist," but uh, I think we, in some ways, totally are.
1: It's kind of like uh, we have this this caricature of what a racist looks like. And we look in the mirror and say, well, good, that's not me.
0: Right. Exa- exactly. Uh, like w- we mean, you know, like we're not racist in a belligerent way. We're not intentionally treating people of other races poorly or yelling obscenities at them or just generally being a jerk. Uh, but I I am and we are in, in ways of not being self-aware and not realizing uh, who we are and what role we, we are, we have in society. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the time we don't realize how much of an advantage we have, you know, for us as straight middle-class white dudes. Uh, right. But the good thing, I think, is that we can teach ourselves about that reality and that awareness can maybe start to shift our culture a little bit. Um, on a different note, one of the things that freaks me out about this is that the shooting happened in a church. Right. And churches are supposed to be this place of, of community, of love, of acceptance, of growth. Uh, sometimes they're not that, but even at their worst, we usually don't expect to get shot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what it's like to fear going to church and, and I hope I never do, but I also know that, that in churches and so many other places that fear is real for people of color. Um, and I think I should know a little bit about that, um, about what that's like, because otherwise I'm not sure that I know what the black community is feeling and dealing with, uh, particularly right now in Charleston. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: You know, something you just said reminded me of a quote I heard from comedian Dennis Leary, who said, and and I quote, Racism isn't born, folks. It's taught. I have a two-year-old son, and you know what he hates? Naps. End of list. End of list. He hates naps. Look, babies are born with brown eyes or blue eyes. They are born with light skin or dark skin, lots of hair, no hair, somewhere in between. But babies are not born racist or, or not racist. It's a learned thing. In our American society, it's in the water that we all drink. We We all have some racist tendencies or actions or impulses. I own that. Lately, I've been... Hearing that we shouldn't even focus on the word racist because it's an inherently negative word. Maybe, but it's true. Let's dare, let's dare to name the things that are true in our lives, in our society, and we can begin to, to move forward from there.
0: Yeah, and I think we have to move forward, and lots of us know that. Lots of us know that that's not that things are not how we want them to be. Um, but sometimes we're unsure of how to actually make that next step and actually bring about some change. Um, and I struggle with that frequently, but I want to pass along some insight from Christina Cleveland on what that might look like practically. So Christina is the first associate professor of the practice of reconciliation at Duke university's divinity school. She's also the author of a book called disunity in Christ, uncovering the hidden forces that keep us apart.
1: So she's the Associate Professor of Practice and Reconciliation at Duke Divinity School. She may have something to say about this. I think she has something to say about this. (laughs) Right, right, right.
0: Anyway, so last December, she wrote an article for Relevant Magazine called How to Actually Fight for Racial Reconciliation. Mm. And I want to share a few points with you. Uh, Here's just a quick summary of what she has to say. Uh, Number one is know the truth. Two groups who have been isolated from each other need to start by learning the truth about each other. So if you don't know who the other person is, Mm -hmm. there's no way that you can begin to reconcile. And so that's kind of step one. Uh, Number two is embrace your racial identity. So Dave, I'm sure you've you've heard about this, but she talks about the phrase not seeing color. Right, right. Um, And so she basically says that doesn't work. Know who you are and know what's unique about you. Um, and, And she kind of poses the question, how do we use our identity to uniquely contribute to the world? Uh, Number three is confront your privilege and or oppression. Um, So a big piece of this is awareness. How do these things personally affect us? And being aware of how that affects us changes how we interact with people around us. Uh, Number four is to count the cost. Reconciliation can be, and I would argue is, unsettling. It has a cost that affects our comfort, our individualism, and whatever perspective we had.
1: And... It's costly in terms of relationships as well, or at least has the potential to be,
0: be that way. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and the, the fifth point that she brings up, she says, uh, leave your turf and join the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, she suggests leaving our comfort and familiarity, uh, engaging across racial lines. And, and most importantly, I think being aware that the burden of others actually is our burden, that that's tied in with, with who we are and what we're experiencing as well. Right. I, I,
1: Christina Cleveland is is absolutely brilliant, and I, and I really do hope that we can have her at Sandbox Cooperative uh, sometime or at, at the very least join us in a podcast, because I think uh, she has a lot to teach us. Those points seem to speak to a way forward in the aftermath, not only of, of Charleston, right, but but of Baltimore and Ferguson and all the other flashpoints in recent days. I also feel like we touched on a lot of these points in the conversation that I had with Paul Van Auken when he joined us yesterday. We pulled him out of his vacation with his family, so there are some sound issues because he was using the equipment that he had at his disposal and we're using the equipment that we have at our disposal. So if the sound's a little uh, jumpy, that's fine, uh, but we're, we're working on it and we're just so thankful that we could have this conversation with Paul. So I'd like to introduce uh, my friend, Paul Van Auken, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. Paul recently uh, wrote an article called Cape Fear, Sharks in the Ocean and the Pew. It was uh, printed in the Oshkosh Independent, and uh, welcome, Paul, and we'd lo- love to have you say a word about uh, about this article that you wrote.
2: Sure. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I'll see if I can give a thumbnail synopsis. I had been uh, I happened to be in Charleston for an academic conference and was right around the corner just an hour before the shooting of the nine people at Emanuel AME Church happened, and I heard the sirens from our hotel room. I was there with my wife and two daughters, who happened to be beautiful brown skinned girls. So this was particularly disturbing, uh, being so close and having these daughters to be thinking of. Uh, we, were, we heard the sirens from our hotel room or from the, the veranda at the hotel when they, when they were going off that night. You know, and, and daughter's asking, well, what was that? And we said, well, maybe it was a fire. But, of course, uh, we didn't find out until the next morning when I was going to go back to the conference what had actually happened. And, uh, and that was when I read a, 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 an email from, that I'd gotten from the night before from someone from the conference who I was trying to schedule a meeting with. And then, among other things, the email said, I hope you're safe. Mm. Active shooter, possibly eight fatalities. I've never uh, read an email so bizarre or disturbing before. Yeah. Ended up going back to the conference and and, and then finding out a couple of hours later, as I was walking back with the, the city still on edge and it being a pretty freaky situation. Really,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, found out from uh, someone on the street talking to the postman saying they caught him it's 200 miles away in North Carolina. And uh, of course, I breathed a big sigh of relief and called my wife and said, "Well, the kids can come out of our hotel bunker now, because yeah. she was going to keep them there until that guy was caught. Right. Uh, they weren't going anywhere. Um, so we could we could go back and, and uh, go go back to the vacation that we were on. Right, right. So we were able to, to to get back to that, but not not before some painful discussion with uh, with our eldest daughter, who was eight and a half and. She is very socially intelligent and perceptive, and got the gist of that something really bad was going on, and so my wife had been talking to her during the morning, explaining to her what was going on, and you know, it's, uh, but it led to to questions that you just you no know, parent really wants to have to to field, yeah,
1: uh,
2: and and parents field questions like this in in different circumstances, of course, mm. that they don't necessarily have to do with race, but in this case, the question was why would why would this guy do that is there, mm. is there something wrong with us yeah and she's talking about uh, you know brown skinned people mm. um, and it's really interesting because we live in a homogeneous pretty homogeneous city and we interact with people who aren't white but she's growing up with two white parents and in a, in a pretty white place and how much she even identifies with with being non-white or being something else is unclear but it was clear is generally unclear but it was very clear in that moment that she she saw this as an attack on people like her yeah you know and that's is there something wrong with us that's that's a devastating thought for for someone to have
1: it's a heartbreaking question uh for anyone to have and then as a and mom and dad to respond to that very honest honest question
2: it's terrible. and hey, you know, I wasn't there when she asked that question, but my wife assured her that, no, there's nothing wrong with you there's There's something wrong with this shooter. he's he's his heart is filled with hate,
1: yeah,
2: you know, but after that, you know, with tears in her eyes, she said, I, I, I wish I weren't black, you know, and that, mm-hmm. as I wrote in the article, that's the second time she's she said that within the last couple of months and and really, mm-hmm. the first time was sadder because it it wasn't any extreme event that that caused it it was just it was just an awareness that people who are black are are, tend to be treated poorly in this country right and and that's why she said it then i guess that was kind of the hook was that coming out here we i'm now in north carolina at the beach and there've been some highly publicized shark attacks right in this region Mm -hmm. a week ago or so Mm -hmm. you know so as we were coming out we were we were kind of worrying and and joking to an extent that uh have these sharks to worry about, not not knowing that we'd be dealing with a much greater threat yeah. <laughs> in Charleston. It, it's fairly easy to protect oneself from a shark attack. You can just stay out of the water, for example. Uh, and even and even this, uh, this situation in Charleston was relatively easy for us to protect our kids, at the, after we heard about it at least, because we could just keep them in the hotel room mm-hmm. and wait it out. But mm-hmm. uh, that question, that my daughter asks—is there something wrong with us? Is that why why someone would do something bad to us? That's yeah. a question that that unfortunately non-white people, Black Americans in particular, ask on a regular basis. Right. That's the bigger, scarier point. Yeah, yeah. This is an extreme event that helps to to bring it to into focus. But
1: that's the question <laughs> that there, that that your daughter is asking. That so many people are asking, and uh, and and honestly we as as people who who aren't black people who are you know like a white guy like myself we need to respond and we need to respond honestly right and with integrity
2: it's it's one of those things how do you what do you do about this situation you mm-hmm. can't you can't just experience something like that and not do something and i, and I because it would have been kind of uh, uplifting i think and uh, to be part of a community response it would have been really nice to be It'll be part of the the march and different events that are happening there. But you mm-hmm. know, we left town. But I write occasionally for the Ashgabat Independent. I thought, well, what better article to write that might might actually make something s- small, but something good, mm-hmm. come out of this based on our experience at least. And it's been neat seeing responses from people that have that have read it and some you know some conversations that have been started as a result of it. And I, I mean, having this conversation with you. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe somebody's going to hear this and and uh, maybe spreading this around. That, hey, maybe this is something we should be keeping our eyes on and, and trying to, to work on too, guys. That could that would be great.
1: So the, your article creates an opening for us to have this conversation. This conversation is. You know, going to be a podcast to millions and millions of our listeners, <laughs> Nash, internationally, really. Right. Um, <laughs> but but hopefully, uh, uh, it, it impacts people people there as well. Which is just why we do this, right? And and um, it's part of I think our calling to love our neighbor, and to continue loving our neighbor even as as we see people struggling, for sure. Training, you're a sociologist, right? And you're right. Also, and, and you're a Jesus person. So as a sociologist and a Jesus person, you know, how do, how do we respond to these things uh, with regard to protection, with regard to productive next steps, with regard to the conversation that's happening on a, on a national scale?
2: Yeah, it's a big question, of course. Um, but I guess the way I approach it in the article and, and I guess uh, in general is from all those angles, from, from uh, being a sociologist, being a Jesus person, being a father, all that stuff, is that mm-hmm. we have to think about it on multiple levels, of course. And none of this is going to be anything new or any kind of rocket science, but we, we have to approach it on multiple levels, uh, starting with how we operate on our day-to-day lives. And I think if you're in Rochester, Minnesota, if you're in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and really the way, the, the way our society's set up, it's basically anywhere, because we, we live a segregated life in this society. We yeah. live amongst people generally who are like us. So I was writing that article for readers in Oshkosh, which is a pretty homogeneous place. I haven't checked the demographics lately, but, you know, in Rochester, Minnesota, it's, I'm guessing it's fairly similar. But the point is, in, in Oshkosh, you may have to go out of your way more than in some other places to find people who come from different backgrounds with whom to, to interact and build relationships and, and uh and take action uh, together with yeah. but really this is true everywhere because we live such different lives from one another so I think it starts by being intentional about living an integrated life not just you know taking part in signing a petition or you know going to church and praying for things to change all these good things and it's of course much easier said than done that uh, must be stressed I don't, I'm not saying that I've got that part figured out but I think if we really want things to change it's got to start with people just saying it's a priority for me in my family. You know, When I'm raising my kids, I'm socializing them to think and act in a particular way by what I do, the example I show and the situations I put them in, and the things I say and do. Mm-hmm. It's got to start with living an integrated life on a, on a regular basis, interacting with people who are different so it seems normal, and not just normal, but it's it's something to be celebrated. It's a, it's a, it makes life richer. I think it starts with... It starts with that. And then, of course, there are all kinds of other levels that if we really want things to change, we have to go to, you know, so it could be the, I guess, in the social science world or in the academic world, I was starting at the micro level of everyday interaction. And there's a lot more to it than that. But just for the sake of putting it out there. At the mezzo level, you know, at the community level, kinda of in between level. Yeah. There's there's of course tons that can be done. Uh, and churches would be a great great place to start it. I feel like um, it doesn't as I wrote I was in the article I was, I was criticizing a little bit uh, what's what's happening amongst uh institutions where I live, yeah. city government, school system, so forth. It just doesn't seem like creating a, a welcoming, inclusive, diverse community where people are well-integrated. It just doesn't seem like it's a, it's, a, it's a priority there. And I think that's true for churches too.
1: Yeah, it's been said that uh, the most segregated place in America is any church on a Sunday morning.
2: Yeah, and, I, and, and there are some in Oshkosh, and I'm sure you can find lots of examples in Rochester and many other places, of cool things that are happening. Yeah. Uh, in, in Oshkosh, we do have a, and it's no surprise. I mean, I don't think it would have happened any other way. There is, there has been an interfaith gospel festival type thing that's gone on in the last few years, and it was started by this this small, very small congregation that's primarily African Americans. Mm-hmm. It's that little congregation which we've attended sometimes in the in the vein of, we have another church that's very white. Yeah. So I'm I'm part of this system too, no sure. doubt. But we have basically, for the express purpose of trying to live that integrated life uh, and getting to know people that look like our kids, you know, we've gone to that church sometimes, and it's it's it. What's nice about it is it's not it's mixed. There's all kinds of different people there that that find something. That they really like about that church, and it's those people that started this this interfaith you know diverse gospel festival uh, wow. but of course that's that's primarily a one day thing I don't see a lot of other ongoing activities that are stemming from something that has a lot of potential. I think the first thing that at the meso level that needs to happen, whatever institution you're talking about, there has to be a core a critical mass of leaders, people that think this is a priority
1: yeah.
2: To, to build a diverse and welcoming inclusive place that will take action to, you know, in response to acts like this. And we will take action on an ongoing basis to bring people together to strengthen bonds that will allow us to protect our children and our communities. I, I think that the best protection for whatever it is you're talking about, it's, it's a hate crime, any regular kind of crime, just people being treated poorly in a place is building community Because those bonds strengthen our uh, resilience and our ability to handle such things and to be proactive, too.
1: It's counterintuitive in some respects uh, when we think about what is, when we want to protect ourselves. If you want to protect your loved ones from a shark, you don't go in the ocean. If you want to protect yourself from somebody who would do you harm, you create a bunker and don't go go outside that bunker. But to protect ourselves... uh, at a society level here, even at a personal level, it's actually to build bridges. And there's a risk involved with that, an inherent risk involved with that. But it it, it does require that we do, we get out of our bunkers, right? That we get out of our these locked doors, past these locked doors, or and I, and I mean that metaphorically, of course, but get past these doors and and uh, and greet the other who's uh, not like us.
2: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better, Dave. Yeah. And I think I think that's a that's a good segue into in, into stating the, the obvious third level, which is the the macro level, the societal level. Mm-hmm. Well, what the heck do you do about that? You know, that's a that's a challenge in the classroom for sure. You know, I teach whether it's teaching about environmental issues or issues related to, to racism and gender discrimination and such It can be a it can be depressing things for, for students to to learn all this and then feeling paralyzed that they haven't really thought at that macro level to understand how these things are so ingrained systematically in institutions that it, it can it can really be something that's depressing uh, because well what the heck do you do about that how do you untangle something that's so intertwined with the way these institutions the way I, uh, our society operates well yeah. of course we can't do that overnight but that doesn't mean we don't try right right? I think I think all these levels actually go together they go together pretty well because the most effectual action at the macro level starts with people coming together Mm -hmm. building community building that strong base for taking action and and taking it forward from there
1: start where you live and move out right
2: yeah I mean you can be doing all kinds of things simultaneously, right? You can be calling your, you can be calling your representatives and Congress people and such, right? You can be, you can be signing petitions about getting uh, certain things to happen, like the, you know, I, I have to believe that the, 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 outpouring petitions to the, to the governor of South Carolina, right, and all these different things she was hearing, she changed her tune very quickly, mm-hmm. you know. But there was organization there. There was some organization that had some, had some grassroots power behind it.
1: A lot of what I keep hearing on a kind of a political level, uh, since you mentioned it, is, oh, it's a heart issue. We have to love each other. And, and I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, the, in, in scriptures, we have Jesus saying, uh, you know, love, love God with, your, you know, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And, that's, and we can very quickly, if we're to be disingenuous, turn that into a whole kumbaya moment, right? But, mm-hmm. the, but where, where that love gets real is where it gets tough, where it requires that next step. And that's where I think we need to be honest with it as well.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, it, it, that whole thing was, it was extremely interesting because her first response was so predictable, sure. the governor of South Carolina saying, you know, our hearts go out to the families and, and we're praying for the families. That's great. Sure. That's, that's great. You should pray for the families. But that's, that's sort of I was getting at in my article. I was really specifically thinking about that when I said it's it's not if you're just going to pray, mm. that's just not going to be enough. We have to act too. Yeah, and to say that the next thing she said was, I, "I'm not going to take up this flag issue now. I I can't do that to my people, mm. of of South Carolina." I thought, "Do you hear what you're saying? I mean, that you don't want to put the white people through the the hassle of deal of debating this right now. Mm. What greater Symbol, could you take, could you create, then to say that thing needs to come down for the people that are really hurting?
1: (laughs) Right, right, right. right, (laughs) And
2: eventually, she she felt enough of the pressure, I guess, or maybe had a genuine change of heart. It sounds like the the, the African American Republican Senator Scott, from what I've read, maybe Mm. legitimately just had a change of heart because he knew uh, the pastor who was killed.
1: Right.
2: You know, it took knowing him, though. You know, he couldn't see the bigger picture beyond his, I, I don't want to, I don't know anything about this guy, but sure. it, it fits with the way we, particularly Americans, with their individualistic way of operating. We have a hard time using our sociological imagination to just try to empathize with other people and say, hmm, you know, if this, you know how could other people in other positions be feeling about this? Not having to be, to be shocked into a change of mind because you experienced it personally, but being able to imagine and act on that imagination as to how this could affect someone else in a different position,
1: which comes back to the whole thing, place, kind of where we started, which is building community, building relationships. Mm-hmm. We do that, we and, and we're strengthened, right? And and it makes 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 all the difference in in the world.
2: Yeah, and I I think the other thing I wanted to say based on something you said, Dave, was that you know we've experienced some frustration, I think, from well-meaning people where we live, well-meaning, church-going people, who essentially just just practice colorblind ideology, which, in essence, they don't realize it, is colorblind racism. Mm. I, I just see everyone as God's children. You know, Why can't everyone just see it that way? Right. Well, that's, that's a good question to ask, but then we need to keep going with it. Well, why can't they? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of reasons they can't, but the point is to recognize that they don't. Yeah. And, and to just pretend that we can, well, I don't see color, I, I, I treat everyone great, and that totally negates the, the reality of the situation for other people, right around you, right where you are, who need you to to be more bold in taking the love of thy neighbor to heart because mm-hmm. Jesus said, your neighbor is everyone, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> everyone. Everyone. You have to take, you, you can't just sit back and say, well, I, I, you know, yeah, yeah. I love all God's children. Well, God's children right over there are really hurting and need you to step up and do something about it.
1: Yeah, you can because talk about that. you can talk about love, uh, but but ignoring the the neighbor who's hurting uh, and letting them fend for themselves that's that's not what love looks like.
2: No, and and of course I'm guilty of of not heeding that call all the time.
1: Yeah, we all are. I'm
2: not immune from it, and that and that's what I was getting at in the article. I just think. There, there are lots of well-meaning people in Ashgabat, and and you could pick any other community. Great people, involved in great causes and such. But for whatever reason, I guess because it, and it does, and maybe it does have to do with local demographics. They, they don't in this individualistic society, they don't know enough people, personally, that are affected. So they don't. It just doesn't hit them as something that is their problem yet. Yeah. They don't see it as their problem because it, it doesn't personally affect them. There aren't enough people that are willing to, to say, well, it may not affect you know my daughter or my friend, but it, this affects all of us because we're all neighbors, and and this is is something that's that's bringing our whole community and whole society down. Yeah. And how much better, more interesting, more vibrant, more prosperous would it be if all those people were lifted up? Yeah. It's not like. It's not like that's going to cause our ship to, to wobble and sink. You know, we'll, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring us all up together.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You mentioned, you know, this idea of Cape Fear, sharks in the ocean, in the pew, this idea of protecting your family, and that's where it starts because that's who your people are. Those are the people who are around you. But then very quickly, once we... Get past that immediate crisis. Our eyes turn, and I think that's what's happening in our country right now. Our eyes turn to what's happening at a societal level, mm-hmm. and now how do we protect our family uh, in the broader sense? How do we, how do we protect our neighbors and our communities? And mm-hmm. uh, I think this is a very helpful conversation uh, for how we we process that. So, uh, thank, yeah. thank you so much for that
2: yeah and I, I think I really think that there have been so many tragic events lately which of course is terrible
1: mm-hmm.
2: but it might be it might be pushing the society to to places it hasn't been for a while,
1: yeah
2: you know in, in terms of in terms of uh, a collective consciousness shift to use another sociological term right <laughs> you know or maybe maybe uh, little by little at least in different communities I think you know if I think about my own I, I have a feeling that Maybe some of this is going to produce new momentum for people seeing these issues as a priority because it feels like around the country there is a momentum. You had 10,000 people showing up for the solidarity yeah. march in Charleston,
1: yeah, and
2: now you have people and real momentum around the, the flag issue in that state, and then that's that's then diffusing outward to the you know, the Mississippi, for example. From what I understand now, there seems to be some some serious momentum towards pushing for the same thing to happen there. You know, and that's that's just one issue. It's it seems like things are bubbling. So you know, it's sad that it it has to take these tragic events for people to get it. But if if more and more people get it and it can lead to change, then these the deaths of these people won't be for naught.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and, and we have a, we have a a role to play in it as, you know, people who are white people, uh, you know, in your case, who have children who, as you said, are beautiful brown skin, babies, (laughs) not babies anymore. Um, And, uh, and all of us together uh, working to, to impact our, our communities. Absolutely. No doubt. Paul, thank you so much for being a part of this, uh, this conversation.
0: That oh, was great talking to you. My yeah, pleasure.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, there's not really much more that we have to say at this point, uh, but we know that this conversation needs to continue. Uh, so we thought we'd leave you with this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds.
1: So, Thanks again for listening to this, our second
0: podcast.
1: We'd love for these podcasts to be springboards for conversation. Let us know what's on your mind through Facebook, Twitter, and in the comments at sandboxcooperative.com.
0: Also, if you're interested in checking out the articles that we talked about today from Paul Van Alken and Christina Cleveland, you can check those out in the description below.
1: We'll see you in a couple
0: weeks. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you later. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.